0: Chapter 2 of That Sweet Little Old Lady by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Early the next morning, Malone awoke on a plane heading across the continent toward Nevada. He had gone home to sleep, and he'd had to wake up to get on the plane. And now, here he was, waking up again. It seemed somehow like a vicious circle. The engine hummed gently as they pushed the big ship through the middle stratosphere's thinly distributed molecules. Malone looked out at the purple dark sky and set himself to think out his problem again. He was still mulling things over when the ship lowered its landing gear and rolled to a stop on the big field near Yucca Flats. Malone sighed and climbed slowly out of his seat. There was a car waiting for him at the airfield, though, and that seemed to presage a smooth time. Malone remembered calling Dr. O'Connor the night before, and congratulated himself on his foresight. Unfortunately, when he reached the main gate of the high double fence that surrounded the more than ninety square miles of United States laboratories, he found out that the entrance into that sanctum sanctorum of security wasn't as easy as he'd imagined not even for an FBI man. His credentials were checked with the kind of minute care Malone had always thought people reserved for disputed art masterpieces, and it was with a great show of reluctance that the special security guards passed him inside as far as the office of the chief security officer. There the chief security officer himself, a man who could have doubled for Torquemada eyed Malone with ill-concealed suspicion while he called Burris at FBI headquarters back in Washington. Burris identified Malone on the video screen, and the chief security officer, looking faintly disappointed, stamped the agent's pass and thanked the FBI chief. Malone had the run of the place. Then he had to find a courier jeep The Westinghouse Division, it seemed, was a good two miles away. As Malone knew perfectly well, the main portion of the entire Yucca Flats area was devoted solely to research on the new space drive which was expected to make the rocket as obsolete as the blunderbuss, at least as far as space travel was concerned. Not, Malone thought uneasily, that the blunderbuss had ever been used for space travel, but He got off the subject hurriedly. The Jeep whizzed by buildings, most of them devoted to aspects of the Nunn rocket drive. The other projects, based at Yucca Flats, had to share what space was left, and that included, of course, the Westinghouse Research Project. It turned out to be a single rather small white building with a fence around it. The fence bothered Malone a little, but there was no need to worry. This time he was introduced at once into Dr. O'Connor's office. It was panelled in wallpaper, manufactured to look like pine, and the telepathy expert sat behind a large black desk bigger than any Malone had ever seen in the FBI offices. There wasn't a scrap of paper on the desk. Its surface was smooth and shiny, and behind it the nearly transparent Dr. Thomas O'Connor, was close to invisible. He looked in person just about the same as he'd looked on the FBI tapes. Malone closed the door of the office behind him, looked for a chair, and didn't find one. In Dr. O'Connor's office it was perfectly obvious. Dr. O'Connor sat down. You stood and were uncomfortable. Malone took off his hat. He reached across the desk to shake hands with the telepathy expert, and Dr. O'Connor gave him a limp and fragile paw. "'Thanks for giving me a little time,' Malone said. "'I really appreciate it.' He smiled across the desk. His feet were already beginning to hurt. "'Not at all,' Dr. O'Connor said, returning the smile with one of his own special quick-frozen brand. I realize how important FBI work is to all of us, Mr. Malone. What can I do to help you?" Malone shifted his feet. "'I'm afraid I wasn't very specific on the phone last night,' he said. "'It wasn't anything I wanted to discuss over a line that might have been tapped. You see, I'm on the telepathy case.' Dr. O'Connor's eyes widened the merest trifle. "'I see,' he said. "'Well, I'll certainly do everything I can to help you.' "'Fine,' Malone said. Uh, "'Let's get right down to business, then. Uh, The first thing I want to ask you about is this detector of yours. I understand it's too big to carry around, but how about making a smaller model?' "'Smaller?' Dr. O'Connor permitted himself a ghostly chuckle. (laughs) "'I'm afraid that isn't possible, Mr. Malone.' I would be happy to let you have a small model of the machine, if we had one available. More than happy. I would like to see such a machine myself, as a matter of fact. Unfortunately, Mr. Malone—' "'There just isn't one, right?' Malone said. "'Correct,' Dr. O'Connor said. And there are a few other factors. In the first place the person being analyzed has to be in a specially shielded room such as is used in encephalographic analysis. Otherwise the mental activity of the other persons around him would interfere with the analysis. He frowned a little. I wish that we knew a bit more about psionic machines. The trouble with the present device, frankly, is that it is partly psionic and partly electronic, and we can't be entirely sure where one part leaves off and the other begins.' "'Very trying. Very trying, indeed.' "'I'll bet it is,' Malone said sympathetically, wishing he understood what Dr. O'Connor was talking about. The telepathy expert sighed. "'However,' he said, "'we keep working at it.' Then he looked at Malone expectantly. Malone shrugged. "'Well, if I can't carry the thing around, I guess that's that,' he said. "'But here's the next question.' Do you happen to know the maximum range of a telepath? I mean, how far away can he get from another person and still read his mind?" Dr. O'Connor frowned again. "'We don't have definite information on that, I'm afraid,' he said. "'Poor little Charlie was rather difficult to work with. He was mentally incapable of cooperating in any way, you see.' "'Little Charlie?' "'Charles O'Neill was the name of the telepath we worked with,' Dr. O'Connor explained. "'I remember,' Malone said. "'The name had been on one of the tapes, but he just hadn't associated Charles O'Neill with Little Charlie. He felt as if he'd been caught with his homework undone. "'How did you manage to find him, anyway?' he said. "'Maybe if he knew how Westinghouse had found their imbecile telepath.' He'd have some kind of clue that would enable him to find one, too. Anyhow, it was worth a try." It wasn't difficult in Charlie's case, Dr. O'Connor said. He smiled. The child babbled all the time, you see. You mean he talked about being a telepath? Dr. O'Connor shook his head impatiently. No, he said, not at all. I mean that he babbled—literally. Here, I've got a sample recording in my files. He got up from his chair and went to the tall gray filing cabinet that hid in a far corner of the pine-paneled room. From a drawer he extracted a spool of common audio tape and returned to his desk. I'm sorry we didn't get full video on this, he said, but we didn't feel it was necessary. He opened a panel in the upper surface of the desk and slipped the spool in. If you like, there are other tapes. Maybe later, Malone said. Dr. O'Connor nodded and pressed the playback switch at the side of the great desk. For a second the room was silent. Then there was the hiss of empty tape and a brisk masculine voice that overrode it. Westinghouse Laboratories, it said. 16 April, 1970. Dr. Walker speaking the voice you are about to hear belongs to charles o'neill chronological age fourteen years three months mental age approximately five years further data on this case will be found in the file o'neill there was a slight pause filled with more tape hiss then the voice began push the switch for a record in the park last wednesday and perhaps a different set of Poor kid never makes any sense in— Trees and leaves all sunny with the— Electronic components of the reducing stage might be— Not as predictable when others are around, but— To go with Sally some night in the— It was a childish alto voice gabbling in a monotone. A phrase would be spoken. The voice would hesitate for just an instant and then another totally disconnected phrase would come. The enunciation and pronunciation would vary from phrase to phrase, but the tone remained essentially the same, drained of all emotional content. In receiving psychocerebral impulses there isn't any nonsense and nothing but nonsense all the tomorrow or maybe Saturday with the girl tube might be replaceable only if Something ought to be done for the Saturday would be a good time for work on the schematics tonight if—' There was a click as the tape was turned off, and Dr. O'Connor looked up. "'It doesn't make much sense,' Malone said. "'But the kid sure has a hell of a vocabulary for an imbecile.' "'Vocabulary?' Dr. O'Connor said softly. "'That's right,' Malone said. Where'd an imbecile get words like psychocerebral? I don't think I know what that word means myself." "'Ah,' Dr. O'Connor said, "'but that's not his vocabulary, you see. What Charlie is doing is simply repeating the thoughts of those around him. He jumps from mind to mind, simply repeating whatever he receives.' His face assumed the expression of a man remembering a bad taste in his mouth. "'That's how we found him out, Mr. Malone,' he said. "'It's rather startling to look at a blithering idiot "'and have him suddenly repeat the very thought that's in your mind.' Malone nodded unhappily. "'It didn't seem as if O'Connor's information was going to be a lot of help "'as far as catching a telepath was concerned. "'An imbecile apparently would give himself away if he were a telepath.' But nobody else seemed to be likely to do that, and imbeciles didn't look like very good material for catching spies with. Then he brightened. "'Is it possible that the spy we're looking for really isn't a spy? Eh? I mean, suppose he's an imbecile, too? I doubt whether an imbecile would really be a spy, if you see what I mean.' Dr. O'Connor appeared to consider the notion. After a little while, he said, It is, I suppose, possible, but the readings on the machine don't give us the same timing as they did in Charlie's case, or even the same sort of timing. I don't quite follow you, Malone said. Truthfully, he felt about three miles behind. But perhaps everything would clear up soon. He hoped so. On top of everything else, his feet were now hurting a lot more. Perhaps if I describe one of the tests we ran, Dr. O'Connor said, things will be somewhat clearer. He leaned back in his chair. Malone shifted his feet again and transferred his hat from his right hand to his left hand. We put one of our test subjects in the insulated room, Dr. O'Connor said, and connected him to the detector. He was to read from a book, a book that was not too common. This was, of course, to obviate the chance that some other person nearby might be reading it or might have read it in the past. We picked The Blood is the Death by Hieronymus Melanchthon, which, as you may know, is a very rare book indeed. Sure, Malone said. He had never heard of the book, but he was, after all, willing to take Dr. O'Connor's word for it. The telepathy expert went on. Our test subject read it carefully, scanning rather than skimming. Cameras recorded the movements of his eyes in order for us to tell just what he was reading at any given moment, in order to correlate what was going on in his mind with the reactions of the machine's indicators, if you follow me. Malone nodded helplessly. At the same time, Dr. O'Connor continued blithely, We had Charlie in a nearby room recording his babblings. Every so often he would come out with quotations from The Blood is the Death. And these quotations corresponded exactly with what our test subject was reading at the time, and also corresponded with the abnormal fluctuations of the detector. Dr. O'Connor paused. Something, Malone realized, was expected of him. He thought of several responses and chose one. "'I see,' he said. "'But the important thing here,' Dr. O'Connor said, "'is the timing. You see, Charlie was incapable of continued concentration. He could not keep his mind, focused on another mind for very long, before he hopped to still another.' The actual amount of time concentrated on any given mind at any single given period varied from a minimum of 1.3 seconds to a maximum of 2.6. The timing samples, when plotted graphically over a period of several months, formed a skewed bell curve with a mode at 2.0 seconds. "'Ah,' Malone said wondering if a skewed bell curve was the same thing as a belled skew curve, and if not, why not? It was, in fact, Dr. O'Connor continued relentlessly, a sudden variation in those timings which convinced us that there was another telepath somewhere in the vicinity— we were conducting a second set of reading experiments in precisely the same manner as the first set and for the first part of the experiment our figures were substantially the same but he stopped yes malone said shifting his feet and trying to take some weight off his left foot by standing on his right leg then he stood on his left leg it didn't seem to do any good I should explain, Dr. O'Connor said, that we were conducting this series with a new set of test subjects—some of the scientists here at Yucca Flats. We wanted to see if the intelligent quotients of the subjects affected the time of contact which Charlie was able to maintain. Naturally we picked the men here with the highest IQs—the two men we have who are in the top echelon of the creative genius class. He cleared his throat. I did not include myself, of course, since I wished to remain an impartial observer as much as possible.' "'Of course,' Malone said without surprise. "'The other two geniuses,' Dr. O'Connor said, "'happened to be connected with the project known as Project Isle, an operation whose function I neither know nor care to know anything at all about.' Malone nodded. Project Isle was the non-rocket spaceship— classified, top-secret, ultra-secret, and he thought just about anything else you could think of. At first, Dr. O'Connor was saying, our detector recorded the time periods of a mental invasion as being the same as before. Then one day anomalies began to appear. The detector showed that the minds of our subjects being held for as long as two or three minutes, but the phrases repeated by Charlie during these periods showed that his own contact time remained the same, that is, they fell within the same skewed bell curve as before, and the mode remained constant if nothing but the phrase length were recorded. "'Mm-hmm,' Malone said, feeling that he ought to be saying something. Dr. O'Connor didn't notice him at first we thought of errors in the detector machine he went on that worried us not somewhat since our understanding of the detector is definitely limited at this time we do feel that it would be possible to replace some of the electronic components with appropriate symbolization like that already used in the purely psionic sections But we have as yet been unable to determine exactly which electronic components must be replaced by what symbolic components. Malone nodded silently this time. He had the sudden feeling that Dr. O'Connor's flow of words had broken itself up into a vast sea of alphabet soup, and that he, Malone, was occupied in drowning in it. However, Dr. O'Connor said, breaking what was left of Malone's train of thought, young Charlie died soon thereafter, and we decided to go on checking the machine. It was during this period that we found someone else reading the minds of our test subjects, sometimes for a few seconds, sometimes for several minutes. Aha! Malone said. Things were beginning to make sense again. Someone else. That, of course, was the spy. I found, Dr. O'Connor said, on interrogating the subjects more closely, that they were, in effect, thinking on two levels. They were reading the book mechanically, noting the words and sense, but simply shuttling the material directly into their memories without actually thinking about it. The actual thinking portions of their minds were concentrating on aspects of Project Isle. "'In other words,' Malone said, "'someone was spying on them for information about Project Isle?' "'Precisely,' Dr. O'Connor said, with a frosty teacher-to-student smile. And whoever it was had a much higher concentration time than Charlie had ever attained." He seems to be able to retain contact as long as he can find useful information flowing in the mind being read. Wait a minute, Malone said. Wait a minute. If this spy is so clever, how come he didn't read your mind? It is very likely that he has, O'Connor said. What does that have to do with it? Well, Malone said, If he knows you and your group are working on telepathy and can detect what he's doing, why didn't he just hold off on the minds of those geniuses when they were being tested in your machine? Dr. O'Connor frowned. I'm afraid that I can't be sure, he said, and it was clear from his tone that if— Dr. Thomas O'Connor wasn't sure, no one in the entire world was, had been, or ever would be. "'I do have a theory, however,' he said, brightening up a trifle. Malone waited patiently. "'He must know our limitations,' Dr. O'Connor said at last. "'He must be perfectly well aware that there is not a single thing we can do about him.' He must know that we can neither find nor stop him. Why should he worry? He can afford to ignore us, or even bait us. We're helpless, and he knows it. That, Malone thought, was about the most cheerless thought he had heard in some time. "'You mentioned that you had an insulated room,' the FBI agent said after a while. "'Couldn't you let your men think in there?' dr o'connor sighed the room is shielded against magnetic fields and electromagnetic radiation it is perfectly transparent to psionic phenomena just as it is to gravitational fields oh malone said he realized rapidly that his question had been a little silly to begin with since the insulated room had been the place where all the tests had been conducted in the first place "'I don't want to take up too much of your time, doctor,' he said after a pause. "'But there are a couple of other questions.' "'Go right ahead,' Dr. O'Connor said. "'I'm sure I'll be able to help you.' Malone thought of mentioning how little help the doctor had been to date, but decided against it. Why antagonize a perfectly good scientist without any reason? Instead he selected his first question and asked it have you got any idea how we might lay our hands on another telepath preferably one that's not an imbecile of course dr o'connor's expression changed from patient wisdom to irritation i wish we could mr malone i wish we could we certainly need one here to help us with our work and i'm sure your work is important too "'But I'm afraid we have no ideas at all about finding another telepath. "'Finding little Charlie was purely fortuitous, purely, Mr. Malone, fortuitous.' "'Ah,' Malone said, "'sure, of course.' "'He thought rapidly and discovered that he couldn't come up with one more question. "'As a matter of fact, he'd asked a couple of questions already, "'and he could barely remember the answers.' "'Well,' he said, "'I guess that's about it then, doctor. "'If you come across anything else, be sure to let me know.' He leaned across the desk, extending a hand. "'And thanks for your time,' he added. Dr. O'Connor stood up and shook his hand. "'No trouble, I assure you,' he said. "'And I'll certainly give you all the information I can.' Malone turned and walked out. Surprisingly, he discovered that his feet and legs still worked. He had thought they'd turned to stone in the office long before. It was on the plane back to Washington that Malone got his first inkling of an idea. The only telepath that the Westinghouse boys had been able to turn up was Charles O'Neill, the youthful imbecile. All right, then. Suppose there were another one like him. Imbeciles weren't very difficult to locate most of them would be in institutions and the others would certainly be on record it might be possible to find someone anyway who could be handled and used as a tool to find a telepathic spy and happy thought maybe one of them would turn out to be a high-grade imbecile or even a moron even if they only turned up another imbecile he thought wearily At least Dr. O'Connor would have something to work with. He reported back to Burris when he arrived in Washington, told him about the interview with Dr. O'Connor, and explained what had come to seem a rather feeble brainstorm. "'It doesn't seem too productive,' Burris said, with a shade of disappointment in his voice. "'But we'll try it.' At that it was a better verdict than Malone had hoped for. He had nothing to do but wait, while orders went out to field agents all over the United States, and quietly but efficiently the FBI went to work. Agents probed and pried and poked their noses into the files and data sheets of every mental institution in the 50 states, as far at any rate as they were able. It was not an easy job the inalienable right of a physician to refuse to disclose confidences respecting a patient applied even to idiots imbeciles and morons not even the fbi could open the private files of a licensed and registered psychiatrist but the field agents did the best they could and considering the circumstances their best was pretty good Malone, meanwhile, put in two weeks sitting glumly at his Washington desk and checking reports as they arrived. They were uniformly depressing. The United States of America contained more subnormal minds than Malone cared to think about. There seemed to be enough of them to explain the results of any election you were unhappy over. Unfortunately. Subnormal was all you could call them. Not one of them appeared to possess any abnormal psionic abilities whatever. There were a couple who were reputed to be poltergeists, but in neither case was there a single shred of evidence to substantiate the claim. At the end of the second week Malone was just about convinced that his idea had been a total washout. A full fortnight had been spent on digging up imbeciles, while the spy at Yucca Flats had been going right on his merry way, scooping information out of the men at Project Isle, as though he were scooping beans out of a pot, and, very likely, laughing himself silly at the feeble efforts of the F.B.I. Who could he be? Anyone, Malone told himself unhappily, anyone at all. He could be the janitor that swept out the buildings, one of the guards at the gate, one of the minor technicians on another project, or even some old prospector wandering around the desert with a scintillation counter. Is there any limit to telepathic range? The spy could even be sitting quietly in an armchair in the Kremlin probing through several thousand miles of solid earth to peep into the brains of the men on projectile. That was, to say the very least, a depressing idea. Malone found he had to assume that the spy was in the United States, that, in other words, there was some effective range to telepathic communication. Otherwise there was no point in bothering to continue the search. Therefore, he found one other thing to do. He alerted every agent to the job of discovering how the spy was getting his information out of the country. He doubted that it would turn up anything, but it was a chance. And Malone hoped desperately for it, because he was beginning to be sure that the field agents were never going to turn up any telepathic imbeciles. He was right. They never did. End of chapter 2